As we uh, get up in the years, uh, we could spend an inordinate amount of time worrying about things, how things can go wrong with our bodies. And some of us here with medical training are sort of cursed with knowledge. At times, my wife's experience leads to more concerns about our children. For me, it's like, I don't know too much, so sometimes it limits my worrying. But on a more positive note, E-Ray can and does teach Nathaniel how we're fearfully and wonderfully made by our creator with the help of her knowledge. And it also piques my interest to learn more about our physical makeup. I saw this one quote from a book about the body. It goes, quote, Every day it has been estimated between one and five of your cells turn cancerous and your immune system captures and kills them. End quote. So that's pretty cool. That's amazing, I think. Just we often get depressed as our bodies fail us, right? But how often do we praise God for the way He designed our systems to destroy or expel dangerous and foreign stuff? So, so much going on within at a microscopic level that we don't see and appreciate. And when we do learn a bit more about our amazing complexities, right, we should go stop and worship God. Right? Be thankful. So yes, when you sneeze, bless you because you really are blessed. Right? God designed it that way. And I think this is somewhat parallel to our perspective on churches. The church is the body of Christ. The corporeal or corporate gathering of believers, we can sit here and be cynical, complain about the hypocrisies that we see. We can bemoan simple tolerance we see, count up the moral failures among leaders. But we should also celebrate when saints obey the Lord and his word, such as when they follow the steps of discipline outlined in Matthew 18, Take notice when someone responds to that initial confrontation or maybe there's a lasting change in a person with the help of accountability partners. Rejoice how often a sin matter doesn't make it to the ears of the elders right, or to the agenda of a congregational meeting. And say if it does boil over, There are faithful Bible-believing churches who resolve to gently yet firmly deal with stubborn sinners. So cheer up. Don't give up on the local church. Don't despair and only focus on how much the body of Christ can go wrong. Appreciate how a healthy congregation gets rid of cancerous sin. Be optimistic that as we do our part protecting the flock, and fighting sin, the Lord will reward us. So with that positive mindset and outlook, we want to turn to today's passage. And this is part two of our coverage of 1 Corinthians 5. It was somewhat arbitrary to pause at verse 8 last time. But since church discipline and the arguments for it can be controversial and unfamiliar to modern Christians, I took it slow here. 
So last week, I introduced the problem of sexual immorality. We got a glimpse of Paul flexing his apostolic authority to move the Corinthians to action. We discussed our duty to seek purity in our lives using the figure of the unleavened bread. For the saints of Corinth, there's no choice left but to separate from the man persisting in his sin. It turns out this wasn't the first time Paul spoke of such separation. So let's continue in 1 Corinthians 5. That's 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9 to 13. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral, sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I've written to you not to keep company with anyone named the brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. But what have I to do with judging those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So we'll get to the details in a moment. But first, here's a bird's eye view of the passage. There's a two-part wishbone structure. Um, You'll trace the shape in verses 9 and 11. As you look for the following words and phrases, I wrote or I have written to you not to keep company with, sexually immoral. That gives us two parts, verses 9 to 10 and verses 11 to 13. Next, within those two parts, Paul clarifies what he has just stated. In these supporting verses are key hinge words and repetitions. In verse 10, you see the hinge word, yet. Stay in verse 10 and you'll find world, used twice. Moving on to the other part, verse 12 begins with the hinge word for, then the rest of verse 12. And in the first sentence of verse 13, you see the some form of judge used three times there. All of that leads to two principles to determine the church's place in this evil world and the evil person's place in the church. So what are these principles exactly? So let me imagine for a moment as if Paul's the human resource manager of a major company. He had previously released a statement on dealing with clients and coworkers, but there are murmurings and misunderstandings. Frustrated, Paul calls an employee meeting right away. He says something like, that's not what I meant, here's what I really meant. No, don't do that, but do do this. What results from this urgent meeting are two company policies for believers. One's about being separate. One, the other's about separating. Here they are. First, you may have heard this phrase in various different contexts, be in the world even if you're not of the world. Be in the world even if you're not of the world. That's verses 9 to 10. Secondly, judge those inside who identify with sin. 
judge those inside who identify with sin. That's verses 11 to 13. I'll repeat these points later. First company policy, be in the world even if you're not of the world. We begin with some technicalities. When Paul speaks of his epistle in verse 9, he's not talking about 1 Corinthians. We're reading right now. There's a letter written before this one. So there's been correspondences exchanged. And in that earlier writing, the apostle told this church to disassociate from sexually immoral people. We gather that at least some of them took this the wrong way. That's why Paul had to stop to clarify in verse 10. He did not mean that we avoid contact with every single sexually immoral individual out there. This is impractical, impossible. You couldn't do that even if you tried. It's like trying to dodge raindrops or stay dry in a storm. Try as you may, even if you avoid a temple of idols down that street or the den of thieves up ahead, you wouldn't be safe. You're not even safe around the so-called religious types, right? Because you know that those who appear to have halos over their heads and walking on air. But because someone like Paul, even someone like Paul, a devout Pharisee, can struggle with coveting. What are we supposed to do? Get on Elon Musk's SpaceX Starship and get off Earth. Be an ostrich with his head in the sand. Become a monk and join a monastery. Climb an ivory tower. Now, don't do any of that. There's a better plan for holiness. It involves going, right? We must still be in the world, even if we're not of the world. Okay, so we get it. Total isolation is wrong. So is total immersion. But that may sound somewhat hazy, like we dwell in some twilight zone there, but we need more precision. And just thought of two things here. So some practical ways that Christians can maintain our sanity and identity today. So let me just offer two age-old yet relevant answers to this question. I consider them sub-points to help us apply this main point about our place in this world. So sub-point A, hold up law and grace to the world. Hold up law and grace to the world. And sub-point B, stand up as lights to the world. So here's what I mean, hold up law and grace to the world. Now, by knowing and using the law lawfully will correctly draw the line between us and them. Right? Like David, we can teach transgressors the Lord's ways, and sinners shall be converted to him, as it says in Psalm 51. Don't trust your instincts or gut feelings as you interact with the unsaved. Trust God and his word. Right? Scriptures. That's how you walk in wisdom toward those outside and draw proper boundaries. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that we believers never ever struggle with sins like sexual immorality or coveting or idolatry, etc. 
But we must convey to the lost that we repented of such lawbreaking. We repent of it now and will continue to repent of it until glory. I'm saying by God's power and grace, we don't indulge and persist in specific sins. We may struggle, but we don't surrender. There's a difference. We certainly don't go as far as identify ourselves with our evil desires, and more on that later. Rather, led by the Spirit, we fulfill the law by love. And so we walk by the Spirit, and it should be obvious to non-Christians that our attitude toward God's law differs from theirs. That's the way to be physically near the world, right, in with the lost, but morally distant from the lost. So we'll still be in the world, even if we're not of the world. Hopefully as they observe us, they'll be convicted. But eventually, hopefully sooner than later, you must speak of the gospel, right? You certainly don't want them to misunderstand and think you're someone who gets along well without God and never talks about him. That's why as you hold up the law to them, you must point them to Christ. Not only tell them they're sinners, tell them they're sinners in need of grace. This transition from law to grace is absolutely necessary. It'd be cruel not to connect the dots. The Bible does it. It teaches us, you know, John 5, 46. If you believe in Moses, the lawgiver, you believe in Jesus, the grace giver. That's because Moses wrote about Jesus. If you follow the path down to its intended conclusion, you find that Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10.4 The law is our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Galatians 3.24-25 Through the law, we want the whole world to realize that it stands guilty before God. Romans 3.19 And it's true that we're Truly guilty of sin. Hopefully, maybe you present the gospel like this, that that you want to tell them that none of us really knew God. We treat our bodies in passion of lust. We walk in lewdness. We defraud others. We coveted their belongings and made idols of things. We've served a creature rather than the creator. The price for our guilt is God's wrath. Eternity in hell. But God did not leave us as we are. He sent his son into the world so that the world through him might be saved. Jesus, both divine and human, in one person embodied God's power, wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Still, we rejected him. Yet our Lord Jesus did not give up on us. Far from it, he sacrificed himself, gave up his life for us, went to the cross. As discussed earlier in 1 Corinthians 5, he became our Passover, the unblemished lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That means he's our substitute. He suffered the consequences of sins we've committed. After paying for our sins penalty in full, he died. He was buried. He rose again from the grave on the third day displayed many proofs of his resurrection, ascended to heaven. He'll return to judge all mankind. 
Before we face God, we must get right with him, repent, turn away from sin and self-righteousness, turn to Jesus, and trust in him. Cannot earn eternal life, cannot deserve it. It is a gift. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once we're saved, we have a new identity. We have a radically new relationship with the world. We express it when we sing sometimes, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The world behind me, cross before me. To use dating terms, we broke up with this world. We're not friends anymore. It's like what that popular song says, now you're just somebody that I used to know. That's actually putting it mildly. Paul says, we're dead to the world, right? He wrote elsewhere in Galatians 6, 14, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So let's wrap up this long sub-point A. As Christians, we, as we step back into this dark realm of darkness tomorrow, you know, we take God's commandment as a lamp and his law as light. As we hold it up to the world, we pray that there'll be no sin to be sin. That sin becomes exceedingly sinful to them. That prepares them for grace. And we pray that they believe in Jesus, who came as the light of the world so that they may no longer abide in darkness. Now, the Bible not only demands that we enlighten the world by holding up to it law and grace, we ourselves are lights, right? Like the moon reflecting the sun's rays, like lesser lights that depend on the greater light. And that takes us to the second sub-point. Sub-point B, stand up as lights to the world. At this time, I'm going to list a bunch of passages and ask you to meditate on them, basically like homework. Our Lord Jesus himself, in Matthew 5, 14 to 16, preached, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Simple, our good works must be visible. That means we have to be in the world. We must get out from under the basket, climb the hills to be seen. Paul makes the same point in Philippians 2, 14 to 16, reminding us to be excellent in speech and character and shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. There are three more passages. We'll get there eventually in the sermon series, Lord willing, but take a preview look at 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. Right? Again, meditate on this this week. I'll just share a portion of it, you know, 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23. And this is from the second half of verse 22 to verse 23. So, I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. Now this I do for the gospel's sake that I may be partaker of it with you. And so, The apostle teaches us, and we'll look at it later in 1 Corinthians 9, that we ought to be winsome as we win souls. There's a way to be a chameleon without losing your light. Blend in without fading out. 
we need, again, a lot of wisdom in this. Because the apostle will be the first to tell you there are clear limits to that. As you see in 2 Corinthians 6, 14 to 18, again, I'm not going to read it. Take a look at it. Based on that passage in 2 Corinthians 6, we prohibit marriage between believers and unbelievers, and rightly so. I think that is the right application. But there are other un, you know, unevenly yoked unions that we have to be careful about. Now, for example, are we going to participate in interfaith dialogues? Okay. Depends. Is it a debate with them or is it a truce with them? There's a big difference, right? What about partnerships between evangelicals and Roman Catholics? That's relevant to us in the state we live in. It's one thing to join them to protect our unborn and protect our religious freedom. It's another thing to say we agree on the gospel because we clearly don't agree on the gospel. Here's one more verse. 1 Peter 4, 3-4 says, and this time I'll read it. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it's strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. And sometimes standing up as lights to the world means just standing there in certain places and certain circumstances. At times, we must refrain and refuse to dive and wallow in the mud. Right? Okay, so I hope these verses get you in the right mindset to review company policy number one. You're in the world, right? even if you're not of the world. We do this best as we hold up the law and grace of God to them and stand up as lights in the world. Now, as we turn inwardly within church walls, we take a different approach. Here's the second company policy. Judge those inside who identify with sin. Right? Judge those inside who identify with sin. That's verses 11 to 13. Remember in verses 9 to 10, Paul said, that's not what I meant when some tried to avoid the world altogether. Now in verses 11 to 13, he's saying, here's what I really meant. He addresses the misinterpretation. He clears the fog. Verse 11 practically repeats verse 9, referring to the same letter Paul wrote earlier. Here's another technicality, but now is probably better understood as but actually, as you see in the New American Standard Bible translation. Regardless, the point is clear. Don't keep company with anyone who claims to be a Christian but openly and defiantly lives contrary to such calling. A context directly deals with sexual immorality in this particular case, but there's a plethora of sins out there. Paul just lists some of the most common ones. He repeats all the ones from verse 9, but adds reviler and drunkard. He could have listed many more. But we know what they are, and... He's not here to get into all the details of these vices. The bigger task is figuring out what it means to identify with such sins and deal with those who do. 
I believe there's, if there's evidence of sinful lifestyle, it must be observable evidence. So, for example, I think it's hard to push church discipline for, let's say, pride. Now, if pride somehow manifests on vulgar social media posts, failed IRS audits, disturbing police reports, we can move forward with maybe church discipline, but how are you going to prove pride? I need to see it. And there must be evidence of persistent unrepentant behavior. Was it a one-time lapse? Was it an occasional relapse? Or is there repetition that amounts to a continued lifestyle? Is this person committing these sins and also committed to these sins? I think these are good questions to ask as we figure out whether someone's identifying him or herself with specific sin. If the answer is yes, we must disassociate with that individual. Now, what does such shunning look like? Right? Paul offers some help here. He takes that phrase at the first half of verse 11, not to keep company with, and sharpens it at the end of the same verse, not even to eat with. Okay, so if we're going to take seriously God's word, we must exclude those under discipline at some of our functions, at the very least from our meal fellowships. We need a lot of caution, insight, and wisdom here in application. Honestly, I haven't thought too much about how to apply this at men's prayer breakfast, ladies of faith lunches, or brown back lunches after service before membership meetings. My only suggestion is that, I don't know, maybe think about not calling them fellowships if we're going to invite unbelievers. But I have thought deeply about application at the Lord's Supper, which we practice during services. The Lord's Supper is literally a time we, as a church, eat together. So it's important that we do not intentionally or unintentionally disobey the principle of 1 Corinthians 5.11. That's why we must judge those inside who identify with sin. There are various ways we can do this. Some churches practice what's called closed communion with the D at the end there. Right? That means the Lord's table is open only for those who belong to that particular church as members in good standing. It's a very cut and dried method I suppose the benefits that there's minimal confusion and maximal accountability. If Faith Bible Church were to practice closed communion, we probably observe the Lord's Supper during our membership meetings. But we don't do that. Here, the Lord's Supper takes place on Sunday mornings, right? The first Sunday of the month, usually, during our worship services. And it's open to the public. So there can be a mixture here. Not only do we have our own members, we welcome members of other churches. There may be unsaved visitors too. Some may be unbelieving children forced to attend with their parents. Others may be adults without faith, but they're just curious. They can observe us. By the way, that seems to be okay for Paul. We'll see later in 1 Corinthians 14. 
the possibility of our gatherings at least partially open to unbelievers. And of course, there's a real, very real possibility that a person under discipline, either by our church or by another church, joins us on a day like today. This is why it's prudent to practice what's called fencing the table. We want to prevent those who fit the category of 1 Corinthians 5.11 or Matthew 18.17 from partaking the Holy Communion. This is for our sake, this is for their sake, and it's for Christ's sake. Now, how do you, to get more detail, how do you focus, uh, how do you um, fence the Lord's table? And here are some possible ways. I mean, we could tell the disciplined person to leave after the sermon or before the Lord's Supper. Or we could train our servers to identify such people, give them the stink eye, hiss at them, slap their hands if they reach for the elements. Or as a historical example, we could do what Charles Spurgeon did at his large church, have our leaders interview all the members and visitors. If they qualify spiritually, we'd issue them literal admission tickets to the table. This is historically what has been attempted to fence the table. Well, we don't do those things. We've chosen the path of issuing verbal warnings. We don't prevent them from attending in the first place, as you can see. I say it's great that they're sitting here hearing God's word through our singing and preaching, perhaps. They'll respond and repent, get out from under church discipline eventually, right? But we also act, don't act like everything's okay between them and God and between them and us, right? It's not biblical humility to say nothing to them. It's arrogance on our part to ignore what Paul's saying here. I couldn't have asked for a better transition to the next part of the service. So... So as we transition to the Lord's Supper, um, we must judge those inside the church, those who identify with sin. The Lord will handle those outside, out in the world. Our job is to put away from ourselves the evil person. So please remember these truths as we go now to the Holy Communion. Let's first close in prayer and sing a hymn. Lord, we thank you that you saved us. We were once part of the world. Lord, we made it the way it is. Lord, we were idolaters. We were revilers and drunkards and we coveted. Committed sexual immorality. Lord, we thank you that you saved us. It certainly was not because we were such good people, you saved us. It was your mercy and kindness. We just ask that, Lord, as we live in this world, 
May we not lose, forget who we are. May we not be lost in the world. May we see the world as it is, a place where the light needs to be sh- shown, where there's many others who are, who are now like what once we were. Pray that you give us compassion for them, that we'll be in the world, telling them the truth of your word, giving them, uh, looking for opportunities to share the gospel. And Lord, as the world observes us in our gatherings on Sundays and elsewhere, may they see that we take sin seriously, that we fear offending you more than offending them, that we are a holy people, as much as we're able to, as much as we do see sin in our midst, that we would do our part, whether it's going to the steps of Matthew 18, whether it's confronting it um, over a phone call, over coffee or something along that line, that, that the world would see that we do not tolerate what displeases you. We just ask that you would Give us the courage to uh, live holy lives and to live um, as witnesses as we go back to the work life, as we go back home, as we talk with our neighbors. Remind us of who we are in the gospel. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.